Good morning, everyone. My name is Hunter. I believe most of you probably recognize me out there. Uh, my wife's name is Jenny. We have a little 15-month-old girl named Ellie, and uh, you've probably seen her running around on the patio after the service. Uh, we call her our little extrovert because she never wants to stay next to us. She always wants to say hi to all of you. Um, so she's not here this service. She was here last service, so you missed her, but next week and you can probably find her. Um, my wife and I have been attending here for four years, and we love it. We're super grateful to be a part of this congregation. Um, we've loved getting to know all of you guys, and, uh, and really the leadership too. As we've gotten to know the leadership, we've been so impressed with just the humility and the wisdom. Uh, it's pretty obvious to my wife and I that they um, are submitting to Christ in their leadership. Um, so we're, we're really grateful to be here, and I'm really thankful uh, for this opportunity to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, well, before Jenny and I started attending here when we were dating, uh, we went to a fundraiser uh, for a nonprofit organization. And as these fundraisers typically go, is a silent auction. If you've been to a silent auction, you know they have the little prize packages. You know, it can be a, a day out or an evening out on the boat in Newport Harbor or, you know, a fun day at the country club. You know, there's some classy gifts. Well, what caught the eye of this classy gentleman is the Medieval Times dinner and a show date. Uh, so I saw that and I thought in my mind, perfect date for me and my girlfriend. So I put a bid on Medieval Times, I won Medieval Times, and we went to Medieval Times. Uh, sounds like, based off your response, most of you are familiar with Medieval Times. It is a dinner and a show venue up in Buena Park. There's a couple of them up there. You can't miss it. It's a building in the shape of a castle. And as the name implies, it's a fully immersive experience. When you go there, you are in the dark ages. And there's lords and ladies and a court jester and a king and a queen. There's even real-life horse stables with real-life horses in them. And uh, the knights uh, compete on horseback while you enjoy a dark ages meal of roasted chicken and uh, potatoes and a big slice of bread and steamed veggies. And they don't even give you silverware true to the times you eat with your hands and stuff's going everywhere and it's, uh, it's quite the experience. So when you get to medieval times, you sit down in this big gladiator style arena and they assign a knight to you. And that knight becomes your champion for the evening and you root for your knight as he fights against the other knights and they're all themed out by color and our knight this evening was the green knight and I'll never forget it because uh, there was a boisterous group of I think high school students next to us who were chanting very loudly the entire evening, all hail the green knight. Never forget it. And as fate would have it, our night won. The green knight was victorious that evening. And uh, maybe it's because whoever cheers the loudest that night wins. I don't know how they do that. But our night was victorious. And tradition at medieval times is the princess who's standing on a balcony will throw down carnations to the victorious knight. She'll kiss them and then drop them to the knight who was victorious in battle. And then that night, he scans the audience, he looks at his section, and then he kisses the rose, and whatever damsel catches his eye, he throws it to that lady in the audience. Well, the Green Knight had the bad idea that evening of throwing the rose to my damsel. And uh, being the jealous boyfriend that I was, I saw the rose, or the carnation rather, soaring in the air towards Jenny, and with cat-like reflexes, I snatched the rose out of the air kiss it and hand it to my girlfriend. Thank you. Now that 
smattering of applause is not the reason why I shared this date night with you. Um, the reason I share this story at Medieval Times is to introduce this concept of a champion. Uh, you see, the Green Knight that evening was our champion because he won, we won. Because he was victorious in the field of battle, we were victorious with him and we got to celebrate with the Green Knight. In a much more serious and profound way, Jesus is our champion because he is victorious over sin, death, and Satan. We are victorious with him by faith. He has defeated those powers of darkness on the cross and we share in that victory with him. And this morning we're going to be going from Genesis to Revelation to unpack that truth. And we got three sections that we're going to be looking at. The first is uh, Christ the victor of Israel. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Our second section is Christ our victor. We'll be in Colossians and 1 John. And lastly Christ the victor of heaven. And that's in the book of Revelation. So if you can please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17 and I assume most of you are familiar with this passage. It's the story of David and Goliath. And as you turn there, I want to familiarize you briefly with the history of the people of Israel. So God being the champion of his chosen people is a theme that goes all the way back to Abraham who is really the, the father of the Jewish people. And God, in Genesis chapter 15, promised Abram, I will be your shield and your very great reward. And what we take from that verse is we know that God would be Abraham's protector, both in military battle, but also his provider. And that promise extended to Abraham's descendants, the Jews. And we see God fulfill that promise and deliver when the Jews go into captivity in the land of Egypt. They were subjugated by Pharaoh, forced to be slaves, yet God delivers them from Pharaoh. He triumphs over them, destroying Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. And after that period of slavery in Egypt, God takes his people into the land of Canaan, giving them their own land, fighting against all the inhabitants of that land to deliver it to his chosen people. So God has been consistently fighting on behalf of Israel and that continues through the time of the judges where the Israelites go through this cycle of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And as they have victory and prosperity, they get prideful. And they forget that it's God who is their champion. And in that pride and in forgetting God, they begin to worship other gods, idols, false gods. And God in his loving discipline delivers them over to their enemies. They repent and then God delivers them from their enemies again. Then they get prosperous and wash, rinse, repeat. The cycle goes on and on and on. And that continues into the time of the kings and the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, was really reigning during a period of unfaithfulness in Israel's history. They were uh, experiencing subjugation by the Philistines. The Philistines had invaded the promised land and were waging both guerrilla and open warfare against God's chosen people. And verse 17, or chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is where we pick up the story at the Battle of Elah. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let me catch up to you guys. I was in 2 Samuel. Okay, there we go. So the Philistines, they have a champion, and his name is Goliath. And he's a very large and intimidating individual. And Goliath, he gets up and he talks to the people of Israel and he challenges them in verse 8. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So Goliath is really suggesting this concept of a champion. And the Philistines love this strategy because they had Goliath. Because they had, because they had big, scary Goliath on their side. Now Israel didn't necessarily like this strategy. We see in verse 11 here, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You can imagine the soldiers are looking at each other thinking, I'm not big enough to fight this guy. You go do it. No, you go do it. And no one really wants to step up and and fight Goliath. They were terrified because they forgot that they had a champion. They forgot who their champion was. And don't we do the same thing? When the Goliaths of life come our way, when we experience challenges and trials and struggles, don't we look inwardly instead of upward and and outwardly towards God? We tend to look to ourselves to find strength in and of ourselves to face our struggles. But there's one person in Israel that didn't forget, and that was the little shepherd boy, David. In verse 32 David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. You see, David hadn't forgotten David hadn't forgotten that God was the champion of Israel because he reminded himself that God was his personal champion. And that's because he could look back at specific experiences in his life where God had protected him. As he took care of the sheep, God would protect him from the lion and the bear. And he could look back at those examples and say, God fought for me. God was my victor. He protected me. And I know God will do the same for me now. So how has God proven to be your protector, your provider? Has he provided work for you? A spouse? A home? A church? Friendships? Has God given you those things? Maybe it helps to remember when you didn't have those things before you were married, before you had a spouse. That longing to find that lifelong partner to share life with. Maybe you remember a period of unemployment when you were struggling to find work or when you were desperately looking for a place to live and all the houses seemed to fly off the market. Do you remember those times where God provided when it seemed like there was no provision? Maybe God has protected you from from lots of things, from unhealthy relationships, physical harm, bad decisions, sinful habits. Maybe he's withheld those things from you and protected you from yourself 
and delivered you from things that would be hurtful to you. I think when we take time to remember those things and remind ourselves about how God has provided for us and protected us, we find strength. We find encouragement to face the struggles and trials, the Goliaths that we encounter in our lives. And so David, drawing from, that specific, from those specific experiences in his life, he finds the courage to face Goliath. And when he's face-to-face with Goliath, in verse, uh, I believe it's, look at verse 45 here. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand." it was very clear to David that he was not the champion. David was not the champion in this story. He's just the little shepherd boy with the stone and the sling. It's God who's the champion. That was so clear to David, and he makes that abundantly clear to everyone. He proclaims that to everyone, and God doesn't let him down. Because God is victorious, all of Israel is victorious. And David continues to be God's servant. And God continues to be Israel's victor throughout David's reign. And like no other king, David expands the borders of Israel. They take much of the promised land and bring it into their their borders. And because of that, that results in this period of prosperity that his son Solomon inherits. And it's the most prosperous time in Israel's history. And they're probably the richest nation in the region. But then, just like in the time of the judges, that cycle reoccurs. And because of their prosperity, they get prideful. And in their pride, they forget God, and they start to worship false gods. And there's periods of faithfulness, and sometimes there's a righteous king, but for the most part, there's this decline gradually over time where they trend towards unfaithfulness. And God, in his loving discipline, exiles Israel. He removes them, they're defeated by the Assyrians, and he exiles the people of Judah into Babylon. And that period of captivity and subjugation would not just end with the Babylonians, but it would continue with the Greeks and into the empire of the Romans. So for hundreds of years, Israel is experiencing subjugation and tyranny from a foreign power. And because of that, they have this deep-seated longing for a military deliverer, someone who will reestablish their national identity, someone who will give them back their borders and their culture. Wouldn't we feel the same way? I mean, imagine if that happened to America. Hundreds of years we've been in subjugation. Wouldn't you be looking for someone like that? A warlord to free America so we can be Americans again? I think we can relate to that if we put ourselves in their shoes. Because of this longing, because of this deep-seated need for their culture and their national identity to be restored, when their Messiah did appear, when their Savior did appear, they didn't recognize him. It's not the Savior or the salvation they were expecting. It wasn't the one they were hoping for, but it was the one they truly needed. It's the one we truly need 
as well. And that brings us to our second section, Christ our victor. Don't we do the same thing? Do you have assumptive expectations on what it means for Christ to be your deliverer or your champion? Do you think possibly that if Christ is your victor, that that means you'll have this job that'll pay well and you'll have success in that job and you'll have the, the praise and the accolades of your coworkers and your superiors, you'll get the promotion, you'll make plenty of money, you'll have a fully funded retirement account, big beautiful home with the pool, all the grandkids and the kids can play and well, if God's your victor, well then all my kids should be safe too, right? And my political candidate should win every election. My side should always win. Now, I think if you and I, if I were to go out to lunch or breakfast with any one of you and I were to ask you, is that what you think of when you think of Christ as your victor? I think pretty much anyone here, uh, because your theology is, is better than that, would say, no, I don't think I'm owed those things by God. I think we would say explicitly, no, that's not what I believe Jesus to be as my champion or my victor. But if we're honest and we kind of evaluate how we think about life, isn't that how we implicitly think? Don't we kind of imply by the way we think about life and when things don't go our way that, well, what about God? I thought God was on my side. Why is this happening? What about when those things don't come to pass, when you're, you're wrestling and struggling in prayer for your child's salvation day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year for your children? Or you're in a dead-end job and it seems hopeless. It seems like it's just a grind to go into work Monday to Friday. You're struggling to make ends meet in your, in your condo or your apartment. Is Jesus still your champion then? You know, back in high school, I thought I knew what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life for my career. And I went to a college based on that plan. I got a degree based on that plan. And then I actually got hired in that job. And it seemed to be going well. I was enjoying it. Um, I was getting some good feedback. I was prospering in that position. But then one day, all of that changed. And you know what? Looking back on that time, that was hard. But that's one of the best things that happened to me. I'm really thankful to God for that. But in the moment, it can be so easy to get caught up in the circumstances and begin to doubt and wonder, where's God in this? And we start to try and play things 5, 10, 15 steps down the road. And, well, if this happens, then how is this going to happen? And does that mean I have to do this? And, you know, we start to try and strategize and play chess with life, and we just can't do that. God's our champion. God's sovereign. He's in control. But it can be easy to forget that. Like Israel, we can fail to identify our champion because we fail to identify our enemy. We think that our challenging circumstances, our struggles and trials, that's the enemy. We think that's the problem, that life is this way. Because 2020, that's the enemy, right? In order to correctly identify our champion, we have to correctly identify our enemy. And Peter, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, he makes it crystal clear. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. That's the problem. All that other stuff is just surfacy, right? 
There's a spiritual dimension that is underlying all of those things. There are forces of darkness in this world that need to be defeated, that Christ has defeated. And that is why when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to earth born in a palace, political pedigree. He didn't come as a warlord, stirring up the people into a rebellion, fighting against the Romans, reestablishing the borders. He wasn't about that. He was born in a manger. He was kind of a nobody. We learned that he wasn't anything worth looking at, really. Just an average guy. But you know what he did do? He went toe-to-toe with Satan 40 days in the desert. Mano y mano. All the temptations that Satan could throw at Jesus, Jesus resisted those, rendering Satan and his powers of temptation powerless over Jesus. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus reasserted that authority over the powers of darkness by demonstrating that authority in exorcisms and healings of the Jewish people. And that wasn't just because he had compassion on the Jews. He wanted to heal them and set them free from demonic oppression. He certainly did. But it was also a demonstration. It was a statement. I'm the savior. I'm the victor. Your problem is the forces of darkness, sin and Satan, not Rome. And I've come to set you free from these oppressive forces. And that demonstration culminates in the crux of his victory on the cross. And Paul masterfully unpacks that victory in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Verse 13 Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. When Paul says dead, he doesn't mean unconscious, in a coma, sleeping, you know, taking a nap. He doesn't mean any of those partial things. It's a fully inclusive deadness, inability to do anything. And specifically, it's in regards to our sins, We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We're subjugated by them, completely overwhelmed, overcome, unable to do anything to resist their rule over us, kind of like the Jews in Rome. It's kind of like an analogy of what's going on with us spiritually, totally subjugated by our sin. But God, he makes us alive together with him. He proactively gives us life. He saves us from that tyranny and oppression of sin, gives us freedom. How does he do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in these verses, we're introduced to two doctrines that really help us understand how Christ is victorious over Satan and the forces of darkness on the cross. The first doctrine is justification. Justification is a legal or accounting term, and we can see that in the language Paul uses in verse 14, canceling the record of debt. Right? There, the idea is that there's a metaphorical ledger that every single one of us has before God. And on that ledger, there's an outstanding, infinite debt of righteousness. A debt that we could never repay. A debt 
because we're dead, we can never pay because we can never do anything about it. We're unable to do it. So somehow that debt needs to be paid. And that's where we're introduced to this doctrine of substitution, which Rick talked about last week. We learn that Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, perfectly righteous, and that God substitutes his perfect righteousness and our sinfulness on the cross. So that way, that record of debt that we have is totally satisfied, and God takes that record of debt and nails it to the cross and says it's paid in full because this innocent person, this perfectly righteous son of God, gave you his righteousness, and he took on your guilt because you defaulted on your debt. That is what Jesus did for us. And in that apparent defeat, in that seeming defeat on the cross where Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, the Son of God was victorious. He defeated sin and Satan and death and the forces of darkness because in that moment, God could forgive us. He canceled that debt. He set us free. Verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Complete and total victory. He disarmed them. And it says here this phrase, open shame. The idea is how the Romans would come back from a victorious battle. They would bring back all the prisoners of war and the defeated general and they would parade them through the streets humiliating their foes, the defeated enemy. And then shortly thereafter, those prisoners of war in that victorious, or that defeated general would soon be executed. That is what Jesus did with Satan. That is what Jesus did with the forces of darkness on the cross. He defeated them and he put them to open shame. Probably the most, one of the most amazing aspects of this victory is that we get to share in that victory with Jesus. And we do so by faith. Why don't you turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. First John 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. When we read born of God, that should remind us of the passage we were just in, in um, Colossians 2.13, where we read that God gives us life, right? He gives us life. He takes us from being dead to alive. There's a, there's a connection here. We're born of God. God gives us life proactively. And it's, he gives it to those who overcome the world. And how do we overcome? Verse four, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? We overcome because Jesus overcame because Jesus defeated sin death and Satan and darkness we defeat sin death Satan and darkness not because we somehow fought with Jesus and secured the victory with him not because we earned it in any way but because we trust in him who did it for us it's by faith 
We had nothing to do with it. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us. And so we're victorious by faith in him who was victorious for us. So let me ask you this morning, have you put your faith in Jesus? My assumption is that most of us here likely have, but I don't want to be naive enough to think that there isn't at least a few of us who haven't yet. And so I ask you, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in him to secure the victory that you desperately need? Not over the perceived problems and enemies that can so easily be at the forefront of our mind, but your real problem, your real enemy, sin, Satan, the wrath of God. Jesus has dealt with that. And you can share in his victory, not by anything you do, not by somehow doing more good things than the bad things that you do or giving a lot to this charity, not by doing any of that, by simply trusting in what Jesus has done for you. You experience all of his victory. There's a lot of practical implications to that victory, but we're going to touch on just three this morning. The first is victory over temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's no temptation you can't resist in Christ. You have the victory over that sin. You have the victory over that habit. There's never a time where you can legitimately say, oh, the devil made me do it. You can't say that in Christ. You can't say, well, you know, I, I went through, through some really hard things in my past and, you know, because of that, I can't help but sin in these ways or, or think this way or make these type of decisions. It's just who I am. It's who I've always been. Not in Christ. You have victory over that. You don't have to be a victim. You could be a conqueror. You could be more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ because he is victorious over those things. He's victorious over your past. He's victorious over that habit. Jesus is the victor. He also gives us victory over broken relationships. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, all the disunity that we've seen in 2020 can be healed. We can be an example of that in this church. By faith in Christ, living according to, to his will and loving him and loving others, we can be an example to the watching world of what unity is. Despite our political differences, despite cultural differences, we can love each other in a way that the world can see and say, whoa, something is different about these people. They have victory over disunity. Now, they probably don't say it literally like that, but you get the idea. Right? These people have somehow figured out a way to get along in a world that is so divisive. How? It's not us, it's Jesus. And by living by faith in him and loving each other the way he's loved us, we experience that victory. Lastly, he's also given us victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 58. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable 
This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Guys, it is so worth it to live for Christ. It is so worth it to live by faith, even though it can cost us greatly personally, even though we can sacrifice a whole lot, to be obedient and submit to Christ and trust in him, it is so worth it. It's so worth it because we know that Jesus is victorious, that he is the victor, he's our champion, we have victory, and no one will ever take that victory from us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the champion of the universe, the Son of God is for us, There's no Goliath that could ever stand against us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all those things that we fear, all those problems that we perceive to be our real problem? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one's taken that victory from us because it's Jesus' victory and he shares it with us. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing ever could. He is the king of the universe. He is the victor of heaven. And that's our third section this morning. Jesus is the victor of heaven. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Jesus is the victor of heaven. Now, let me define what I mean by that before we keep going. It's kind of an odd phrase, I guess. Um, What I mean by that is that Jesus is not just the spiritual victor, but he's also the physical victor. Jesus is the spiritual and the physical king of the universe for all of eternity. He's seated at the right hand of God, and no one has ever taken him off that throne. But people are going to try. People will certainly try. Satan is still trying to, even though he's already defeated We see in the book of Revelation that there is a rebellion against King Jesus and his saints, against Christians, and that there are generals and armies and all these people gathered together and Satan's behind it all, fueling it, and there's the Antichrist and the false prophet and demons and Satan are all urging this rebellion against King Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through chapter 20, Jesus totally and utterly defeats them. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but it's pretty epic if I do say so myself. In a sad way, unfortunately, because these people are in rebellion against God, but Jesus finally exacts justice, final, complete justice. And so if you want to look at it this week, it's Revelation 19, 11 through 20. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Um, we don't have time today, 
but we will next year because a little birdie named Pastor Rick told me we're going to be studying Revelation next year. So that's something to look forward to. This morning, though, we're in Revelation 21, verse 3. So go ahead and look at verse 3 with me. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Right now, if you have put your faith in Christ, we live in that spiritual victory over sin and Satan. And that, that way we have freedom to, to live as we just looked at, in unity over temptation and with confidence and, 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 and peace because we know that we're not subjugated to death. We have victory now in this life, but isn't there more to come? Doesn't it feel like there should be more victory? Did, every day doesn't always feel like a victory. That's because there is more to come. That's because Jesus has yet to bring physical victory that longing that we experience in prayer to be face-to-face with God, having a conversation, to be hugged by God, to be comforted physically in his presence, that longing will be satisfied one day. Jesus will bring that physical unity with God, relational unity with God, and will experience that total and complete victory very soon, Lord willing. Verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. When I read it is done, I'm immediately reminded of it is finished. Jesus, when he said it is finished, he fulfilled his purpose in his first coming as the Messiah. When he says it is done here, he's fulfilling his purpose as Messiah in his second coming. It's done. Every wrong is made right. Justice will be served. We'll be comforted in the presence of God. We'll be living with him for eternity. We see here the fulfillment of Romans chapter 8 when Paul talks about our longing and creation's longing and groaning because life is hard and things don't work the way they ought to work. And relationships fall apart. People get sick and die. There's acts of violence against innocent people. God will make all that right. He will bring justice. He will make all things new. There'll be a fresh start. And it's because Jesus is victorious. Verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now when you read Revelation, it's pretty clear Jesus is the victor. He's the champion. He's the guy on the horse. He's the guy with the sword slaying his enemies. Jesus is the victor. Yet in this verse, it's not referring to Jesus. It's referring to us. We are the overcomers. We are the conquerors in this verse. Why is that? It's our concept that we've been talking about this morning of God's victory is our victory. We share in that victory with Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We experience that victory by faith in him. 
And then again, we see this language of the God being our heavenly father. He will be my son, right? Right now, we experience the spiritual reality of that, of being born again into God's family, being adopted as his sons and his daughters. When we go to heaven and in the new heavens of the, in the, in the new earth, we will physically be with God. He will be with us, our God, comforting us, leading us, guiding us, and we will worship him. You know, keeping all of this in mind really gives perspective on our present. Knowing that justice will be served and that everything will be made right gives us the strength to patiently endure any injustices that we see or experience here in this life. We don't have to be vigilantes. We don't have to exact cowboy-style justice on the mean streets of California because we know that God is going to bring justice. We know that Jesus will make everything right. Because Jesus is our king, we don't have to be obsessed with who our kings are in this life. Jesus is a perfect king. He's perfect in righteousness and justice. His reign is free of corruption and scandal. He's not an elected official. You can't stop him. No one will unelect Jesus. He is victorious. And he rules with compassion, patience, and wisdom. He is everything that we long for in a leader. Jesus is that. He is that now and he will be that physically over all the universe for all of eternity. And we know that one day we will live in paradise with God. All of our needs and wants that we've ever had will be met one day. They'll be met in God himself, being in his presence. God will satisfy those desires. And because of that, we can let go of all this material stuff here on earth. We don't have to care so much about it. I mean, yeah, I'll take whatever God gives me, but I'm not going to cling to it as if he can never take it back. I know that one day he will give me abundantly more than I could ever ask or think because I'll be with him. Because he's better than anything I could ever ask or think. So because I'm going to get Jesus, who cares what I get in this life? I got him. Keeping eternity in perspective gives us so much strength and comfort now. In an opposite sense, when we fail to keep eternity in perspective, we miss out on a lot of strength and comfort in this life. Florence Chadwick uh, was a woman who in 1952 attempted to swim from California to Catalina. Fifteen hours into that swim, Florence gave up. A thick fog had set in around her and she couldn't really see where she was and she was exhausted, so she just figured, oh, I'll get in the boat. I'll call it quits. I'll try it again some other time. Well, just a little while after getting into the boat, the skies start to clear up and she sees that Catalina is only one mile away. 15 hours. Could you imagine in the freezing ocean you give up and it's only a mile away? She is uh, recorded as saying, if I could only see how close I was, I would have hung in there. I would have kept going. My paraphrase. Isn't our life the same way, right? If we could just keep focus on what lies ahead, we'll make it. We'll get all that motivation, all that strength to hang in there. And you know what? Two months later, she attempted it again and she did it. She made it. We got to remind ourselves what lies ahead for us. It gives us the motivation and the strength to endure the struggles of today. So maybe at this point, we're wrapping up the sermon, you're wondering, how is this a Christmas message? There's very little Christmassy stuff. 
right? There's presents on the stage, but this isn't a Christmas sermon. I got a Christmas verse for you Christmas lovers out there. Luke 1, 31 through 33, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and he's prophesying about her son Jesus. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Gabriel pretty much preaches my sermon in three sentences right there. I got nothing on him. He's an angel. What's, in, what's packed into these verses um, in Luke is a quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And that's going to be our last passage this morning. So if you could, please turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. doesn't get more Christmassy than Isaiah chapter 9. Look with me at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is our victor he is going to reign forever and ever in eternity and he shares that victory with us we get to be victorious with him i know 2020 has been crazy and despite how crazy 2021 is going to be we can celebrate christmas this year with joy confidence peace worshipfully knowing that we have a champion We have someone who is victorious over sin, death, brokenness, and Satan, and all the forces of darkness. We have a champion who has defeated all of our enemies. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and the Son of Mary, born in a manger 2,000 years ago. He is victorious. Please pray with me. Jesus, you are our King. You have freed us and delivered us from the tyranny of our sin. You have made us alive with you. And Heavenly Father, you have adopted us into your family. You've made us your sons and daughters. What a gift. And we share in the victory of your son, not because of any good thing we've done, but because of just trusting in you, because of our faith. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have put their faith in you. God, strengthen them. Help them to endure. Help them to not grow weary of doing good, but know that they are victorious because you are victorious. Give them boldness 
to live by faith in you, even at great cost to themselves. Help us to be an example to the watching world of what true submission to you looks like, what true unity looks like, and what true confidence and boldness looks like in the face of losing everything, even death. Lord, give us that courage because we have such a great victor. Lord, I pray for those of us here who have not experienced that victory, God, please convict their heart. Show them that they are unable to pay that debt, but that your son has paid that debt for them. Let them, Lord, run to you. Bring them to yourself. Lord, I pray that they put all their trust in your son and nothing in what they have done. Let them cling to him and see how he is surpassing anything else in this life that they could ever hope or imagine to get that everything else is worth letting go to cling to Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision this Christmas, that they would join us in worshiping you, King Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.